Kai to Hori, the Fanganga, Kitamatawai, Fokanubia, Tehi Māori Ōrā. Welcome to you all. Uh, welcome to this, the first of the Pukehina Hina uh, summer lectures for this year. Uh, it's great to have so many people. Uh, uh, Bonnie, my wife and I were talking on the way over and we wondered how many would turn up to this uh, a more specialist topic, really, about the missionaries and who would be interested in that. Turns out quite a lot of people. So that's a really good thing. Thank you all for coming along tonight. Uh, my name is John Hewington. I'm the vicar here. Normally I'd be slightly more formally dressed, but I went cycling this afternoon and I was a little bit sweaty when we came over, so I thought I'd put off putting on my nice shirt and I'd wear a t-shirt while I'd moved pews and things, and then I realised I left a nice shirt sitting on the couch next to the door. So, <laughs> so at least I put on a decent t-shirt and the other one I had on initially was a shocker. I would have had to go home with that one. Um, if you brought a phone, uh, now's a good time just to put it on silent. Uh, if you need a toilet, they're back through um, down the passageway and diagonally across the lounge. Um, there are signs that point you. If you end up in a hall, you've turned too soon or too late or something. Just look out for signs. Um, I think there'll be a, a stop after about an hour um, just to stretch these uh, pews are uh, designed not for comfort, they're designed to keep people awake during services. <laughs> um, so about now, it'll be a good time to stand up and stretch. Um, those of you who have been before, uh, normally at this point the church is quite hot and it's going to get a lot hotter, uh, but this year we have uh, wonderful um, air conditioning units in, or heat pumps, so they'll work as heaters during winter. Uh, which is wonderful. So I need to say thank you to Tet for their amazing uh, support in helping us get these in. And I ordered the uh, the big banners and things so I could really kind of um, push them. And when I got home on Friday, I realised that I actually hadn't gone to pick them up. <laughs> so next week we will have the Tet banners out, so we can properly thank them. But thank you, Tet. We appreciate your support. Um, <coughs> we are recording uh, tonight, so um, I need to say that because apparently there's a new um, privacy law. Uh, so we are doing the sound. If you don't want your sound uh, to be recorded, don't ask tricky questions. And I've kind of zoomed the camera back, which looks awfully like my phone. Uh, and hopefully I've chopped everyone's heads out. I think Terry's, top of Terry's head's in there. He's just a tad too tall. But... Um, I'm sure he doesn't mind. Uh, so I've tried to focus on Cliff, so I just need to say that if anyone's um, feeling anxious about that, you are feeling anxious about that, that side of the church will not be reported at any point. So, uh, to the topic. Um, in about 2014, I think, maybe 2015, uh, one of our uh, retired bishops, John Bluck, who uh, was quite, uh, not, written quite a few books and um, he'd been in the paper a lot. Uh, he uh, came here and he gave a lecture about the missionaries and he was particularly concerned as we celebrated the bicentennial of the first missionaries coming in, eight, uh, in 2014 up at Oihi that um, that for many people the name of the missionaries had become synonymous with just agents of the British Empire who came here to bring 
British colonialism with them uh, and to kind of feather their own nest. And he felt that was a particularly unfair representation of who they were. And he invited the Anglican Church, not just this church, but all Anglican churches, to actually um, re-engage the story of those first uh, Parker missionaries and to, in a sense, rehabilitate that story, to retell it and to, once again, um, yep, they, they weren't perfect, but they were astounding people, the men and the women. Like we, we, talk, we talk about the men a lot, but actually some of the real heroes were the women, and I think Cliff will talk about that. Um, Charlotte Brown here, we talk about Alfred Brown all the time, but Charlotte, his wife, uh, was really the mainstay of that mission activity. Marion um, Williams up in the Bayer Islands. Without her, there is no mission. So, um, so Cliff and I have talked about doing something around this, uh, and he's been pondering that. He was a little um, consumed with uh, writing books about uh, that of Gokar with Buddy, and then uh, rewriting his thesis about the military intelligence uh, during the New Zealand wars. Uh, so uh, he's got that out of the way, he's had a small break, and he's now retired. So he needed something to fill up his time. <laughs> Not really, actually. He's still really busy. Uh, but this year he said he'd really like to have a go at that. So um, most, many of you will have uh, heard Cliff speak in the past. He's one of our eminent historians, local historians. Uh, and it's great that he's a member of this parish. And I always enjoy listening to him because I'm really looking forward to next week because he's going to talk about Bathgatkar and Bathgatkaranga, which is always great for me because I've got groups coming in about two weeks after that and I need to brush up on my history before I start talking to them. Uh, but I'm really excited about tonight and to hear what Clifford has to say about the story of the missionaries in this country. So um, please put your hands together and welcome Cliff. church, 
you entered under the words, all who enter here be reconciled. Um, and we hold that sentiment really strongly here. Uh, we're very conscious of the importance of this place and um, of telling the story of this site. And uh, we've expanded that out now to really some of the other uh, areas around our colonial history. I don't have any agenda tonight. I'm not, I don't have a barrow to push. I'm not trying to promote anything apart from just a general understanding of our history and our education, and, and our education about uh, what has influenced our society. And of course, the story of the missionaries, uh, there's another half to it, which is the Maori response, and how that was received by the, the Maori and the development of the Maori church. Now, I'm not um, qualified to talk about that, and I'm not going to be really getting into that tonight. Uh, but we do have uh, Reverend Dr. Harini Carr coming in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, he may be talking about the treaty. Uh, he has just released a very good book on the Maori church, so he can cover off that side of the topic. Some of you will know that I'm a, a military historian, and maybe I'm just getting outside of my swim lane a little bit tonight, but I'm not going to talk about the missionaries from the perspective of theology. Theology absolutely confuses me, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to go down there, so I'm going to take an historian's perspective of the topic. But I'm just looking around the room, we have a number of um, ministers and theologians and other people in the room, so if we have any further questions, I'm pretty confident we've got people who can answer them for you. <laughs> um, my first experience of missionaries was in 1980. I've uh, been a school teacher and I've gone back to university and I'd just finished a master's degree in geography. And one of the papers I'd done had been uh, was development studies. We looked at developing countries and um, all of the issues around, you know, about modernising or westernising or whatever in those countries and the issues that they had. And um, my sister happened to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea, this is in 1980, her and her family. And they were with the Australian Anglican Church. So Paula and I went and stayed with them for a, quite a period of time. And it was really quite a fascinating experience watching stuff that I'd been learning uh, actually happening and seeing what was happening to this community. I can still remember the, the village, the people were called the Orokaiba people and they lived in a particular valley. And the, the arrival of Europeans with um, a completely different philosophy, with knowledge of the outside world, with technology, with financial resources, was changing their life quite drastically. For good and for bad. Uh, and I, I remember looking at them and I, I was so conflicted about what I saw happening. Uh, but it was happening to them anyhow. And I think I can see parallels with that and to colonial New Zealand um, 150, 180 years ago. And my study of the colonial wars um, has drawn me towards the work of the missionaries because. The story of the missionaries is just woven right through our early colonial history and right through the period of the wars. So that's why I have developed this interest in the missionaries as a sort of a secondary interest. So we'll just make a start. Here you can see the, um, the famous picture of Samuel Marsden uh, at Rainy Hollow Bay uh, arriving to preach the gospel. 
Now, William Wilberforce is a, a name that we probably all learned about um, in the past, one of the, um, the, the, uh, the great sort of uh, humanitarian reformers in England, and uh, he was the Vice President of the Church Missionary Society, or the CMS. At the time, around about 1800, early 1800s, Great Britain was going through quite a few changes. Uh, as a result of the Industrial Revolution of people coming in from the rural areas, living in urban poverty and the, the type of work that people were undertaking, uh, there was a movement, a humanitarian movement, against slavery, child and female labour, uh, uh, and even, uh, the, it was the start of um, some of the legislation or the ideas around protection of animals. So there was a humanitarian movement going on. At the same time, the empire was spreading, and uh, Britain's consciousness about the wider world was developing. People were becoming aware of other cultures, the empire was adding colonies and adding other countries, uh, and Europe as a whole was actually spreading outwards. Now, this um, fellow you might have seen here, he had a TV series on BBC a few years ago on the history of Great Britain. And in particular, when he's talking about the empire, he called it the empire of good intentions. Now, um, I guess we can think of empires that didn't have particularly good intentions. I think, say, imagine if we had become part of the Japanese Empire during the Second World War. I don't think the Japanese had particularly good intentions towards us or the other countries they occupied. There was a, a specific reason for that empire. Uh, but the, the, the thinking in the, um, the British Empire um, was that it was of a higher, a higher level than that. You can see there the Victorian values emotional discipline and moral and material self-improvement. And it was this feeling that by going out and creating an empire, we're going to improve other peoples. We're going to actually raise them up uh, by being a little bit like us and by adopting the values uh, that Great Britain had. It sounds a little bit like some of the stuff you hear about the United States at the moment. American exceptionalism, the shining city on the hill, um, and perhaps Americans don't quite see things from the other perspective, but they have this very strong belief that things that they do in the world are generally good. There was a belief in um, free trade and market economics that, that the empire was all about trade. Uh, and the idea that you could develop institutions and democracy and eventually leave the colonies being self-reliant. And that happened to a large extent. Britain, when it withdrew from its colonies, did leave its institutions um, in place to some extent. Um, Simon Sharma was mainly focusing on, um, North, on, on Ireland and India, and he was very critical about this concept of the empire of good intentions. And although the good intentions were there, the, uh, the actual damage that was done was quite significant. So I'm not trying to gloss over that. Um, and by the 1830s, the question is starting to be asked about the validity of imposing these ideas and these values on other countries. And in particular, what's the value of Christianity in this area? You know, during the process of colonization, what's the role of Christianity? Does that make it better? Does that justify um, this process of colonization to some extent? 
This is a map that I, I just, I really love this map, and it's, um, it's hard to see from where you are, and I've put that date on it. So this is later on than the period we're talking about. But it, I, as a boy, I grew up really proud of the fact that um, we were sort of at the tail end of the British Empire, that a lot of the globe was red, um, the sun never set, a sixth of the world's population were part of the British Empire, we down here in New Zealand were part of that as well. If I just show you a little bit more detail, this is, um, I think, encapsulates some of the thinking. There's Britannia sitting there and uh, being held up by Atlas, sitting on top of the world, and you've got, um, obviously, indigenous people or native people, as they would have said there, you've got the exotic um, images from India, you've got the hunter or the explorer, you've got the exotic animals. This is the way that people who were coming to New Zealand, this is the environment that they probably, or the ideas that they had in their mind when they were coming here. And perhaps the most famous of all uh, of the heroes of Victoria was David Livingstone. He, in a way, encapsulated the values and the essence of that empire, empire and the idea of, of Britishness. Uh, in an era where you didn't have pop stars and movie stars and Formula One drivers and um, models, supermodels and so on, the heroes of Victorian England were some of the politicians, um, <clears throat> the royal family, the admirals and the generals, um, and the explorers, people like that, maybe some of the engineers and so on. But he was arguably the most famous. He grew up in very humble beginnings in Scotland, he worked in a cotton mill with his family. He studied at night. He, he did well. He was obviously uh, talented. He goes off to university. Just It's all about hard work and sacrifice. Becomes a medical doctor. Becomes a missionary. Um, and becomes an explorer. And goes to, do you remember the term deepest, darkest Africa? <laughs> goes to there and um, brings uh, Christianity, commerce, and medicine, uh, and he fights the slave trade, the, um, and he's operating in, in the area of the Zambezi River, and he is admired, and then to finish it all off, he sort of dies tragically uh, in Africa, and he gives his life, if you like. And so that's a, a very interesting sort of image, I think, of, of a Victorian hero. There's a photograph of him here, it's a little bit hard to see, but on that side you can see people who I think have are kneeling in prayer. Um, uh, there's someone having their chains taken off. Someone else is the children being fed. So this is the, the imagery that um, was, was important. The last image that I just want to show you here is Queen Victoria uh, passing a Bible to a, um, a, a prince from some um, part of the empire. Now, it's not actually true, but it's said at the bottom and right there, it says it's based on the popular unfounded anecdote. But the Queen is supposed to have said, when asked by a diplomatic delegation how Britain had become powerful in the world, our beloved Queen sent her not the number of her fleet, not the number of her armies, not the account of her boundless merchandise, not the details of her inexhaustible wealth, but handing him a beautifully bound copy of the Bible, she said, Tell the prince that this is the secret of England's greatness. And so there's almost a sense, um, almost a sense of that the Christianity is British as well. 
Um, but certainly that it's something to be shared with the rest of the world. So if we just um, think about Great Britain in the early 1800s, there was, was a time of religious fervour. You know, these things go through cycles, but there was a period of religious fervour. There were um, uh, preachers who were very famous who could go into uh, to halls and churches and draw crowds of thousands. Uh, it was also a time of social mobility where people um, were moving up and um, uh, you could become, uh, by becoming a, a minister or becoming a missionary, you actually were improving your social standing as well. The, the opportunities to be in the clergy had traditionally been based around um, the Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge universities, but uh, during this period of time, other ways of becoming um, ordained started to develop. And the CMS missionaries were evangelical missionaries. They were, that's how they thought, that's how they were trained, and that's what they intended to do. So they were going to take the, the gospel to the world, um, and they, the, part of being evangelical was this belief that the, the, the people who were converted uh, would have a personal conversion. So the CMS was founded in 1799. Uh, and the first missionaries actually had difficulty finding their first set of missionaries and they had to um, get some German Lutherans who were sent to West Africa. And um, they drew the short straw because um, I think it was mainly in Sierra Leone. Some of these people only lived for a matter of weeks. Uh, it was very, very tough for people from Europe to go to parts of, some parts of Africa and their life expectancy was very, very short compared to uh, most of the missionaries who came to New Zealand who lived to old age, they stayed into, in New Zealand. In 1809, the first missionaries from New Zealand. So New Zealand was the second cab off the rank, if you like. And by 1820, the organisation had become um, established enough that this was the uh, headquarters and the training centre, or the training college, in Islington in North London. So it became quite substantial. Now, if we just come across to uh, uh, focusing more on the New Zealand side of it now, we've got three interesting characters who are part of the early, um, the story of the very first part of the uh, missionary effort in New Zealand. Uh, Te Pahi was a chief from the Rangihua area uh, in the Bay of Islands. And in 1805, he went to Sydney with his four sons. He went to see the governor. Uh, he had actually hoped that he might get as far as the United Kingdom, but he went over there, met the governor, also met Samuel Marsden, uh, and he returned um, back to uh, New Zealand with a medal, uh, with his name engraved on it, and with a prefabricated house that the governor, Governor King, had given him. Now, Samuel Marsden was um, the chaplain to the penal colony in Sydney, and he had established himself at Parramatta. He was also a magistrate and he was an astute businessman and he, uh, he developed a farm of about 3,000 acres. And um, he had tried to evangelise the Australian Aboriginals and they weren't open to Christianity at all. There was just no progress there. And he started to think in terms of New Zealand. Now he met Te Pahi. Uh, Te Pahi came and saw uh, his operations at Parramatta 
and they started to talk in terms of the potential of a mission in New Zealand. The third person there is, is a, a, a younger man than um, Tipahi, he's uh, Ruatawa. He's from the same area, and he was also uh, going overseas at this time. He was travelling the world and um, was in England. When um, Marston went back to England uh, in 1807 to talk to the CMS and get permission to establish a mission in New Zealand. And he found Ruatawa, who um, had been travelling for several years, he had been beaten, uh, he was in very poor health, and he was on a ship called the Anne that was travelling back to Sydney. So Marsden nursed him back to health, uh, and they got talking and they developed a friendship. And Ruatara stayed with Marsden until 1810. So this is the foundation for what was to happen. In 1809, when uh, Ruatara and uh, Marsden were still heading back to Sydney, uh, there was a ship called the Boy that was burnt in the Whangaroa Harbour. Now there were ships coming into New Zealand at this time trading for kauri spars. Uh, the spars were useful for shipping, for masts and other things, and there was quite a trade in this. And the Whangaroa Harbour was quite a, a small, narrow, sort of enclosed harbour. The Boy was in there uh, and it was attacked. Now the reason was it, it was attacked is because there had been a young chief travelling back to New Zealand on the boy, and he had fallen foul of the captain, uh, and the captain had had him flogged with a cat of nine tails, which wasn't uncommon in those days, but um, it turned out to be a pretty poor decision, because um, when this young chief got back, he uh, told his family what had happened, and of course the, uh, the white whanau attacked the ship. Uh, there were 70 crew on board, some of them climbed up the, um, the, uh, the masts and tried to escape. The ship was surrounded. Uh, eventually, it caught fire. The gunpowder exploded. The, uh, the 70 uh, crew were killed, and quite a number of them were eaten as a revenge for um, the, the flogging of this family. Now, the upside of this is that, um, or the initial response to this, is that a whaling crew uh, took exception and looked uh, for revenge. And they mistook the name of the chief who had led this um, raid on the boy, and they thought it was Tipahi. And they raided his um, village and he was killed. And so that put the plans of the mission back because um, you know, unfortunately he was, he was killed. Uh, and Governor uh, Macquarie, that was then in, in New South Wales, put a ban on any Europeans come to, uh, or any that he had authority over, come to New Zealand uh, because it was just considered too dangerous. And a lot of ships' captains wouldn't come, because, and if they did come, they certainly wouldn't get their ships in a situation where they could be attacked like that. Now this uh, is just um, in the paper, it was on the Stuff website a couple of days ago. This gentleman, Hugh Rehari, is the Kantiaki of the Rangahoa Heritage Park, which is where the Marsden Cross and where, the, um, where this all took place. And he, uh, he made some interesting comments. He actually was saying that this is probably the true birthplace of New Zealand rather than Waitangi. We all talk about Waitangi being, being the birthplace, but this is actually 
where the two uh, racers, Māori and Pākehā, came together, worked on a project together, and actually established something. And this is a generation before Waitangi. And um, um, the place is a little bit out of the way, and it's not visited anywhere near uh, as much as Waitangi, but I think he's actually got a valid point. So I've, I've spelled this out in a bit of detail, and I hope you can read it, but I, I'll get confused if I don't do this. Um, so Rotara had had a, a, enough of being in Parramatta with Narsen by 1810, and he and a number of other Māori went back to um, the Bay of Islands. Marston waited another five years, and he couldn't get permission, he couldn't get it, and he still wasn't allowed to visit New Zealand, and so he purchased his own ship called the Active, and he sent uh, two missionaries who he had brought out from um, uh, England a number of years earlier to do a reconnaissance to see if it was possible to set up a mission station and to make contact with Ruatara. The contact worked out well and they were well received and Ruatara, Hongi Heka and several other uh, Māori came back to Sydney and they essentially planned the establishment of a mission station. And by late 1814, a government inquiry gave Marsden permission to go to New Zealand. He gave him four months leave and he could go to New Zealand and establish this mission. Um, and um, so Marsden was on board the ship, a few other people, and the mission families, and as you can see there, eight Māori, two Sawyers, a smith, two mares, one bull, two cows, sheep, goats and chickens. Obviously, to sustain the um, mission families when they got there. And there's an interesting story about um, Marsden hopping on the, one of the horses and riding it around. And people were just astonished. They could not believe um, that um, such an animal existed and that you could ride it like that. Because they obviously never seen it before. Marsden had actually sent some plants uh, uh, to Tara uh, earlier as well. And one of them was wheat. And he had, there's an interesting story where he had grown some wheat and um, uh, other members of the community had laughed at him because they pulled the wheat up and found there were no tubers underneath them. Because food plants were plants that had tubers underneath them, and so he was being mocked. So what he did, he ground the wheat, um, mixed it with water, and fried it in a frying pan and made a biscuit and, and introduced this new idea of food. Um, so some interesting thoughts. So um, this is the famous photograph of Samuel Marsden preaching uh, at Oihi Bay um, on Christmas Day, 1814. And um, this standing next to him in his military uniform that he'd been given by Governor Macquarie is Ruatara. And he uh, explained, because he actually knew how church worked, because he'd been in uh, Parramatta with Marsden for quite a couple of years, he understood how it worked, and so he explained um, to the congregation of about 300 what Marston was saying. And it's possible that Marston had a little bit of terrain as well, because he had been um, spending time with, with Maori back in, in, back in Australia or New South Wales. And the, uh, uh, the, the, the other person in the uniform is Hongi Hecker. He becomes part of the story soon. Uh, you can see Rangahoa Pa up on the top, and flying up on the top was the Union Jack. So um, 
there was a real effort to welcome Marston and the missionaries. Now, Mission, Marston had this a strange idea that you had to, you, um, of the way of converting Māori was going to be through the idea of teaching them European schools. And so the early missionaries were tradespeople who had practical skills. And the idea was that you would teach them practical skills, you would teach them British etiquette, um, you would teach them uh, industry, if you like, or how to make things, and then that civilised them. And once they were civilised, they could then be converted. Uh, so that, that was his idea of the way that, um, that, that he thought about it. Here's another image of um, Rangihoa. It's a little bit hard to see perhaps, but you can see the power up on the hill and the mission settlement um, on the side there. But this uh, mission settlement was a bit of a disaster. It was very difficult for the people. You can see that um, William and Dinah Hall, John and Hannah King, Thomas and Jane Kendall, these were the first people who arrived, and you can see the trades that, that they had. Um, they found it very difficult to establish a mission here. Um, the place wasn't fertile. They couldn't grow their crops. The animals didn't really thrive. Um, and the personalities were difficult. I think in particular Thomas Kendall uh, was a difficult uh, person. Because he was a school teacher, um, <laughs> he thought he was the most important. Uh, he, he was more educated, he thought he should be the leader of the community. Um, and he was, him and his wife were having um, their marriage basically blew up. Uh, so they were, they were having problems. And it was a difficult place to be. And it was just, they weren't making progress. What made it worse was Ruatara died within days of um, the establishment of the mission. Um, he was already sick when Marsden left a few days after having preached on Christmas Day, and it was apparent that he was going to die, and he did die. And in those days, any Europeans needed a Maori protector. They needed a chief uh, to be their patron. Uh, and he was going to be their patron and their guardian, and he died, and so that came now that Honi Hika would be the there's the place now. It's really, if you haven't been there, I really would recommend it. It's a fabulous um, place to go. The, uh, the park was up on the hill, and the mission village uh, was down in the area here. And it actually stayed there until the 18, 1830s. So, uh, four years later, another mission station was established. Marsden made seven visits to New Zealand in total. And this time, the mission station was established at Kirikiri, at the head of the inlet. And you all recognise the sewing store and Kemp House. And James Kemp and his wife lived in that house, um, and it was established by John Butler, who had become the head of the, of the Seven's mission in New Zealand. Um, there is Pongi uh, Hicker and Thomas Kendall. In 1820, Thomas Kendall um, was still was very unsatisfied. He was um, struggling with the whole concept of the mission. As I've said, he thought he should have been in charge of it. Um, he wanted to be ordained. And he had actually started to drift uh, towards learning much more about Maori culture. And he'd started to immerse himself in Maoriness rather than uh, 
um, CMSness, if you like. And he actually even developed a Maori vocabulary, a written vocabulary that he had printed in Sydney. He went back to England and took Hongi um, Heka and another chief called Wako back to England. Hongi Heka wanted to meet the king, King George IV, and um, they actually ended up going to Cambridge University where there was a Professor Lee who was a linguist. And they worked with Professor Lee for a couple of months and he um, worked out uh, a, better, a better English or a Maori dictionary. And this was the basis for some of the translation of Maori into a written language. Uh, he, uh, they were the toast of the town in London, they were very exotic looking people, um, and they received gifts, gifts from the king. And when they came back via Sydney, Hongi Hika had um, 12 muskets and a suit of armour. But he cashed in the gifts in Sydney and came to New Zealand with about 300 muskets and quite a lot of power. And on the ship back, he was with some other chiefs, so you can see how much travelling there was between New Zealand and the Australian colonies. And he calmly informed them that he'd be going to be um, attacking them soon. Um, which is what happened. This, uh, this is a picture of um, the uh, Kiri Kiri Inlet right at the head. If you just look up at the top there, you can see the stone store. The stone store was actually a, um, a storehouse for the mission, uh, particularly um, the mission in Waimati. So they produced the food on the mission farm in Waimati. It would come down and be stored at the stone store, and then it would go out through the inlet. But uh, that piece of land here, um, the bare piece of land that you can see looks like an old pass site, is Kororipo Park. And that's the part from which the Ngāpui war parties departed on their great expeditions during the Musket Wars. Uh, for at least five years, the war parties uh, came out of there, hundreds and hundreds of men. And they um, attacked right down through the North Island, firstly the, uh, the tribes around them, and then later uh, right down. They certainly came down here to Tauranga a couple of times down as far as Lisbon, up the Waikato River as far as Peronia, uh, and various other places. And defeating people, because they were musket armed, um, they had tremendous victories. And um, it's considered that the death toll during the whole musket wars period was at least 20,000, perhaps, maybe 25,000, which is about a quarter of the Maori population. Now, the missionaries in, um, in Kemp House were witness to some awful scenes uh, when the ships came, when the boats came back. Uh, Jane, uh, I think her name was Jane Kent, Mrs. Kent, uh, kept a diary which I've read, and um, when the war parties would come back, um, people would be just murdered. Uh, they, they brought a lot of prisoners back, and these people would be murdered, and then there would be um, um, carrying time for the next couple of weeks where people would be killed with sleeping. Uh, the carnage that was going on was poor. I think that's one of the saddest places in New Zealand. Obviously, there's been a lot of tremendous sadness. Um, and so that, that happened during the Musket Wars. And the Musket Wars actually lasted for probably 15 years, well into the 1830s. Now, the missionaries got involved to their um, shame in the musket trade. The only um, currency that Hongi Hika was interested in, or food, was muskets. 
The only currency really that was important in New Zealand at the time was muskets. And Kendall in particular, and one or two others, actually ended up trading muskets to food. And that's something that was held against the missionaries. Things were about to change though. So in 1823, this uh, man arrived, and he's a giant in the story of the Church Missionary Society, uh, Henry Williams. He'd been a naval officer, um, and you know, after the Napoleonic Wars, people were put on half pay, so he was on half pay and was looking for another profession, and eventually offered himself for the mission. He went to uh, Islington, uh, trained up as a missionary. And he, uh, he was a little bit older than some of the other missionaries. He was 31 when he arrived in New Zealand. Marion was 28. They already had three children. They would go on to have 11. Um, and um, he, he, he brought a sort of a discipline and a leadership uh, to the mission uh, and turned it around because it really had been failing. Um, Butler, who uh, we saw earlier on, um, Marsden sacked him uh, for drunkenness. Um, he, he had been the leader of the mission. So they were really in turmoil until Henry Williams arrived. He prepared himself well by um, learning about boat building, um, uh, a lot of the skills that he would need, medical skills, uh, of course all the missionary type of skills that he required. Uh, one of the first things he did was stop the trade of muskets and um, he tried to break this reliance that the missionaries still had on food from the Māori. He tried to break them free from the control. He saw the control that Hongi Heka in particular had over the, uh, over the missionaries. So he moved away from that area to Paihia. Uh, and there was another chief, and particularly the chief's wife who owned the land at Paihia, who um, threw their quote, if you like, over that mission. And rather than uh, Marsden's emphasis on um, trades and, and uh, teaching the skills and then trying to sort of civilise Māori, which in that sort of concept, he immediately decided that they needed to emphasise spiritual teaching. Um, and because he was such a strong personality, he also uh, became a peacemaker. And uh, he would travel uh, great distances around the North Island um, he was very influential, he was brave, and in the end he was uh, mediating, you know, different uh, tribes would invite him in and he would mediate. So this increased his mana, and the mana of the other missionaries greatly. So this was a real boost. Um, and he also started to, to realise what was happening in New Zealand. There were an awful lot of land speculators coming across from the Australian colonies. There was a lot of dirty dealing around land, purchase of land um, and um, he realised that something needed to be done to protect uh, Māori from a lot of the fraudulent practices that, that were happening. So here's the Paihia Mission Station and it's called Heavenside and I'll tell you why in a second. So this is established in 1823. If you come from Kawakawa and you drive down the hill and down to Paihia, you turn left along the, the waterfront and that's the waterfront there. And the mission station was uh, this first group of buildings. Um, there's still a stone church there at the moment, which is the third church on the site. And Paul and I were really fortunate to be there the week before Christmas and go to their carols and reading service. And um, it was a retreat to be in a building that was on a site that was so significant. Um, and the town of Paihia at the moment is 
over, you can see the little outcrop there, on the other side of that is where the little, the little shopping centre in Pine Hill is. So that was um, the mission station. And it was run very formally, you can see it was all nice straight lines, it was very orderly and well laid out, the bowels were ring for, for prayers at certain times of the day, and it was, it was, um, it was all done very well. Uh, the missionaries got together and they would have classes where they would learn to speak to Rail. They would try and develop these skills because they knew that they needed to have those skills to be able to communicate. Uh, and then they would, uh, they would practice and they were doing their preaching as well. Uh, and of course the school teaching. And that usually fell to the women. So Marianne, as well as having a, a whole bunch of kids and running the mission station, cooking outside, um, all of those other things was actually running the school at the same time. Uh, mainly for girls, they separated the boys from the girls. Uh, they did these long missionary journeys, they were exploring, uh, looking for new sites, but also just getting food. And in some of the journals you see, we got a quantity of potatoes in Tauranga, uh, and they were pleased because they were going to bring it back and feed them. Feed them. Uh, the mission, uh, basic medical skills, and of course translating. And the translating, um, oh, I'll just jump in here. Now, across at Russell, what we call Russell now, Port Aranka, was a terrible place. Um, the hellhole of the Pacific, the very seat of Satan. <laughs> this was just the complete opposite to the, the way the mission station was being run over in Pahia. Uh, there were about 80,000 brothels on the foreshore, and the wagon ships would come in and they would. Um, Get, there was a spring on the waterfront in, uh, in Russell and they would get water, they would fill their water barrels and they would, um, get, uh, they would replenish the food supplies and there was also always a supply of young women for them as well. And in fact sometimes Mary, I'll read Marion's diaries and she talks about how the girls had disappeared for a couple of weeks and then they come back later on. So um, as far as the missionaries were concerned this was just a little bit nice. Um, this was an important stage for them, the launching of this boat. This, this 50 ton bark was built on the beach at Paihia. It was called the Herald. And um, it was built by um, boat builders who came across from um, New South Wales and a lot of the Maori as well who were uh, provided a lot of the labour and the, the, wood, the wood skills. Uh, and when this thing was built, it, it gave them a freedom, once again, to get to travel further and to acquire more food. And this ship actually went to Australia, or the Australian colonies, four times, and it went around New Zealand. But it, it was wrecked in about 1828, I think, so it had a, a short but productive life. Now, Christianity had initially not really been uh, particularly attractive to, to Māori, to the majority of Māori. Um, <coughs> missionaries couldn't even feed themselves, the missionaries couldn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture, and there were lots of other Europeans around. The missionaries seemed to be a strange little group compared to the, the whalers or the other types that were around. But um, missionaries were useful for trade. Um, if, if you had a, a missionary or a trader or um, some other European, uh, it meant that ships were going to come and go. So it was a window to the outside world and a window to, to produce. But the main thing, of course, um, and the, the real boost now is the translation of the Gospels. Uh, in 1826, Henry's brother arrived 
Uh, and he was a natural linguist, and he started working on the gospel. Uh, and they started to produce um, tracts, uh, and these became very valuable, and they were treasured, and they became um, trade goods. And Māori would come from miles and miles, or so chiefs would send someone from miles away to go and get some of this information. Um, the idea that the Word of God could be in a little book or in this thing was quite, quite remarkable to them, and they were very, very interested in it. And all you needed was someone in the community who could read, often a child, often a child that was going to the school, um, and they would read the, read the Bible. It wasn't the Bible at the stage, it was just tracts. Uh, and they would read, say, the story of the Good Samaritan. And they would read that, and then the community would discuss it. And they would sit around and talk about it and what the implications of that were, and compare it to what they knew and what they thought about things. Uh, and, and this is part of the way that the, the story of the Bible started to, to be translated. Um, the first baptism, as you can see there, was an elderly chief who decided that he wanted to embrace this new religion as early as 1825. But he was a bit of an outlier. Uh, there weren't many conversions until around 1830. The fourth mission station that was developed was the one at we now call it Waimati North, but Te Waimati. Um, and this became a real centre. And this finally um, gave the mission station some economic independence. A very fertile land in that area. It's just inland from Kerikeri, and it was linked by a cartway to Kerikeri. And it became a farm, a boarding school. So the missionaries now have got children who need to go to school. And there are also some young Māori now who are starting to go to school as well, uh, to, to boarding school. Um, Hanare Taratoa, who's the story, uh, one of the young men in our story here in Tauranga, actually uh, may have gone to school here briefly before it became St John's College and moved to Auckland. Um, it became a translation centre and a printery, and it's also Bishop Selwyn's home from 1842 onwards from here as the first bishop. And this is what it looked like, um, you know, quite a productive farm. It was a little piece of England in the middle of the New Zealand countryside. And another big breakthrough occurred a few years later. 21-year-old William Comenso arrived, and he was a printer. And this is very similar to the press that he brought. And they could now churn out uh, huge quantities of, of, of um, tracts. And they started to work on the New Testament. And the New Testament was 345 pages. Um, and so it was a massive enterprise, even getting the paper to do that. And they, uh, apparently upwards of 60,000 copies were sent, were sent out. Um, one per two Māori was thought uh, owned a copy of the New Testament sometime in the um, 1840s. So it spreads out across the community. Another uh, aspect that I've alluded to is the peacekeeping. This is um, theory, I think, Archdeacon uh, Brown. Brown arrived at Paihia just before um, 1830, so um, uh, he would have gone through the similar sort of experience to most of the missionaries arriving in New Zealand, learning the language, learning the culture, um, going out, preaching, um, and then going further afield uh, and peacekeeping. This is in the Waikato. 
This is down in Wellington. You can see the missionary. These are the sort of images that would have appeared in the newspapers and journals back in England, by the way. But here's the missionary stopping at War Party, and you can see him pointing to the to the good book there. And um, this is one that's close to the home. This is Victoria's um, War Party uh, coming down to attack Otomaito Park in 1832. And um, they came down, a huge number came down, and in the middle there you can see a, a, a little sailing vessel called Kawarae, a messenger. And um, uh, that, that's got um, Williams and a few other missionaries and some boys from the school who came down to try and stop this war party that came down and actually laid siege to the Otomoto Park and was unsuccessful. Uh, and then went and had a go at um, uh, one or two other places and then sailed home unsuccessfully. So these are the sort of the peacekeeping activities. Just another little interesting um, thing that you all recognise this flag. Uh, this flag um, we now associate with uh, Maori independence or Maori autonomy. Uh, Tino, it's not the Tino Rangatira flag. It's actually the New Zealand, uh, it's actually the Church Missionary Society flag. Um, and it's quite interesting. I think it's quite, I'm often quite amused that it's been repurposed for something quite different. But that was the flag that was used by the CMS. Um, and um, when the shipping from New Zealand started to go to Sydney, um, you obviously needed to fly under a flag. And there was a case where a ship um, sailed into Sydney Harbour and was, a, was captured, and the authorities said that um, it was a, a ship with no flag, therefore you know, it was illegal. And so um, Busby, um, James Busby, who was by now the New Zealand consul in New Zealand, had three flags made in Sydney and had them brought over. And I've actually seen mock-ups of these three flags. And um, the flags were flown, and there were 24 or 26 chiefs who were asked to choose which was the flag that they wanted to represent their ships and New Zealand. And um, the flags were flown. This one got 12 votes, the other, another one got 10, and I think the other flag got 2 or 4. And that's how that became New Zealand's first flag. But strangely, or interestingly, it's actually the CMS flag. There are variations of it. The borders can be slightly different. Uh, and as I've said at the bottom there, this is the first uh, hand embryonic, uh, embryonic um, time that the chiefs sort of come together and think about themselves as New Zealand rather than as individual chiefs. And it's part of that journey towards the, um, the treaty. So by 1830, um, most of the well-known missionaries had arrived in New Zealand, people like Alfred Brown, for instance. Baptisms were starting. Uh, the economics of the mission were going well, was being well led. And there were attempts to uh, spread out. It was now time to, to go into the rest of the country. Uh, and some of the mission stations were established in the 80s, well, most of them were actually established in the late 1830s and early 1840s. But some of them were failures, and we know that in Tauranga here there were several attempts to establish one before finally was done, and that's because um, of the, the, the intertribal fighting that was still taking place. Uh, some of you will know the story of Tarori, the little girl um, who was killed on the Kainai, so I'll just tell you a little bit. 
So that story happens during this period. Um, once again, Brown, Morgan, and a few other missionaries established a mission station at Makama, uh, just where the, uh, the road bridge goes over the railway line at Wahawala. You look over to the left, there's a cemetery there, that's where the mission station was. And it only lasted about a year because there was a war going on between um, the Rotorua uh, Tiarua and the Ngāti Hoa in that area, and Tauranga was slightly involved, they were allies of Ngāti Hoa. Um, the missionaries sent their wives, the wives and children were sent back to a safer place, and the missionaries stayed uh, in the very rudimentary building that they had. Um, uh, the place was uh, very dangerous for them. Uh, they, they were burying their clothes and possessions in metal boxes and uh, uh, in the ground, and after a few weeks they would get them out and air them, and then they would bury them again. And eventually the, um, uh, the mission was attacked, and, um, and they had to leave. But during that time, um, a group decided that they had to make a run for it, and they were going towards, uh, they were going to try and get to Tauranga away from the war parties, the Aru war parties that were looking for them. And Tarori was part of that group. And they spent the night at the Wairiri Falls on the other side of the, um, the Kaimais there. And the war party caught up with them and um, Tarori was killed. Uh, and the interesting part about it, well there's several interesting parts of that story. Uh, one of them is that she was wearing uh, a copy of the Luke, uh, St. Luke's Gospel that had been given to her by Mrs. Brown. And um, that Gospel found its way to Rotorua, found its way to Otaki, and eventually the Christian message ended up going right down to the South Island. That's a whole other story. But her father was um, Nakupu, and he, um, they buried her at Pa in Matamata the next day. And he decided, he, he said we would not seek revenge, that he would forgive his enemies. And that had quite a, a downstream effect as well. So you can see how the, the, the change of thinking was starting to take place. In 1838, um, we have um, one of the most significant chiefs in Napoli declaring, uh, you can see what he says there, Tamati Wakamana. And there was probably uh, a war weariness. The, the country had been at war now for nearly two decades. There had been that huge um, death toll. Uh, the introduced diseases were taking an effect. Maori were dying and they didn't know why. And the old tohunga didn't seem to have any way of stopping that. And um, maybe just maybe this message that the missionaries are talking about with their God uh, is, is maybe there's something in there. And, and in the late 1830s, there seemed to be quite a move, quite a, quite a, a range of conversions. Uh, the treaty, a couple of years later, now, Henry Williams is once again absolutely crucial in the treaty story. Um, I don't think he realised that um, Hobson was a rival, uh, but of course he was the go-to man when um, Captain Hobson arrived and wanted someone to translate his ideas into a document in Māori so that, um, that he could give it to the chiefs and ask them to think about it. So Williams and his son Edward drafted the treaty. Um, and he has been criticised for his drafting of it and his explanation of it. 
um, words like Kalantanga and Rangatiratanga and, and the, you know, we can talk about <coughs> the powers, but he was crucial in the whole process. That's him, you see the um, gentleman in the yellow cloak, that's Honi Heki, um, and the head just above him is Williams. So he was right at the top table, and he was um, explaining to the chiefs what the treaty meant. Later that night, when the chiefs went back down to Titi Marai, um, he went and answered their questions and explained what it meant. And then um, the next day, the chiefs had decided that they were ready to sign. So uh, probably he is absolutely decisive uh, in, in, in his support of the treaty. By the 1840s and 80, the period 1840 to 1860, um, there are mission stations right across the North Island. Um, and it's thought that up to 50,000 Māori might have been attending Russia, all denominations. Um, that figure may be a little bit high, but certainly there were probably about five to 6,000 Roman Catholics, maybe 10 to 12,000 Muslims, <coughs> and well over 30,000 uh, CMS or Anglican Māori who adopted Christianity to some extent, and of course it wouldn't be um, you know, it's going to be some sort of a melding of their beliefs and these new beliefs that have come in. But by 1860, there seems to be evidence that already an interest in the, in the, um, the mission in church was starting to wane. Now, I think this might be just a good time to stand up and have a quick stretch. I'm getting close to the end, but uh, let's have a stretch. Let's
Oh, his name's just gone over my mind. But one of the missionaries here as well, a Wilson, had been a naval officer as well. So these are the enemy, um, both both nationally and um, theologically, if you like. And uh, there's, there's all sorts of funny stories about um, how one Maori community might become Roman Catholic, so because the other one had become Anglican or something like that. They did it almost to see the fun. There were occasions where um, the missionaries would debate each other and, um, um, and were really damning of each other. I think it was quite hard for the Roman Catholic missionaries because um, they lived in the villages or in the paths themselves or in the, uh, in the community. Uh, and it was a very, uh, quite a hard life that they led. Uh, whereas over time, the, um, the CMS missionaries ended up living in quite nice houses. Somewhere on the line, they lived in a nice mission house. And it was relatively comfortable. But the Catholics were right there uh, living amongst the people in a much different way. And of course, they were celibate, they were single. And that um, confounded a lot of the Māori that couldn't quite understand what that was all about. <laughs> and we had a Roman Catholic mission here in, in Tauranga until uh, from 1843 to 1863, I think, just before the Battle of Gaipa. So they're a big part of the story as well. Uh, so what happened on mission stations, just very briefly, um, I have a friend who used to talk about this years ago, and he used to say they were essentially like a polytech. So um, at a mission station, um, there was obviously the literacy and the numeracy in their own language that was um, taught. Um, there was all the evangelization, the training up of mission teachers to go out into the, into the villages and the communities. But there were also um, Western farming schools, animal husbandry, um, all around growing the crops, boat building, fences, all of that sort of stuff. There was a whole range of things that the, the missionaries were trying to, to do as well. And they had staff who were sent over uh, to help uh, do that sort of thing. So they were a big undertaking. Before people were um, baptised, they had to undergo examinations to, um, to make sure that they understood what they were getting into, they had to do recitations of, of, of parts of the Bible and all of that sort of thing. So it was a big operation. I just want to talk briefly about the missionary women. John alluded to this at the start. We talk about, this is Victorian England, right? So we talk about the men. But uh, the, the story of the mission women hasn't been forgotten. There are numerous books about it. But their contribution was just extraordinary. This is Marianne Williams, the woman who came with Henry. Uh, as a 28-year-old, um, and had 11 children, lived to old age, um, and just put up with the most extraordinary situation, running a school, uh, running a household, dealing with all the visitors. And then this is the first house they lived in, in on the beach at Paihia, which was um, a Raupo hut and a sail cloth stretched over a frame. And they lived in that for years until they could build a proper house. And in the early days, they were in danger. She was attacked, they were attacked, um, they were assaulted, all of their stuff was stolen. Um, and this is in the, sort of the very early time when, when um, they were trying to establish themselves. It was a very precarious existence. Here are, I think this must be the 1860s, because that's about when photography starts to be 
available in New Zealand. But those are some of the very senior women. I think they, their husbands all might have been bishops in the end. Um, so I've just explained their roles. Most of them came to New Zealand as young women. So we think of them now as old ladies, you know, you see that sort of photo. But often one of the first things, the last things that was, would happen before you left England was you got married. Um, and you would marry in your mid-twenties, there's really nothing that's going to prepare you to go to the other end of the world and never see your family again, never, never see your parents again, uh, and live in those sort of conditions in New Zealand. And um, the missionaries that arrived were generally under 30 years of age and young and inexperienced people, but just full of that sort of zeal. Um, there were instances of serious depression and mental health. I was reading um, recently about Bishop Salmon's wife, who was trying to run the, the, um, the mission station at Wainate. Um, Hundreds of visitors a year coming and going, lots of Māori coming and going, running a household, running a school, uh, running some sort of a medical thing, and she just found it just overwhelming, and she just um, crashed for a while. Um, they were fearful for their lives, and they were often desperately lonely. Um, Marianne Williams talked about her widowhood, because Henry would go away for months on end on his peacekeeping missions or other things, and she was stuck back at home. Um, and I've read, there's an interesting book on her diaries, and she um, would write away to her parents or her sisters in England. She wants some gingham for the girls' dresses. And 12 months later, if she's lucky, a ship might arrive. And if she's lucky, the package of gingham will be there, but it's gotten wet, so it's rotten. Oh. Well, there's no paper to write on, and things like that. You never, you know, and, um, you never see your parents again. Uh, the, the, as, the, as they aged, the children of the mission people uh, often intermarried, and so you had a second generation, because they were still quite a small group of people. Uh, quickly on the spread of Christianity by Māori, and this is, this is quite important. I've called it the returnees from the north, but often the, um, when the um, uh, Chiefs in the far north would convert to Christianity. The missionaries would put a lot of pressure on them to release their slaves. And there were an awful lot of slaves being held in the far north that had been um, captured during the Musket War period. And Rawa Puhiraki um, is an example here. There were people from Poland here who were being held up in the north. And so they start coming back through, um, and certainly after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, those people start coming back through and settling back in there and coming back to their home areas. And of course they bring a lot of the things they've learned from the farm, or they bring the literacy in their own language, they bring them farming uh, skills and things like that, and they bring Christianity. And so they are actually planting churches or little communities before the European missionaries even get there. So down in Wellington, for instance, in the Hutt Valley, um, there is a power with a little chapel, but there hasn't been a missionary down the Wellington yet. And the same in um, various other parts of New Zealand. And they've taken it down, they've, they've, they've sort of learned a bit about it, and they are teaching this new philosophy, this new religion to, the, to their people. There were also, um, and the fact that they had just come, literally come back from the dead, gave them um, astonishing mana when they returned to their community. 
Um, there were Maori uh, Christian teachers who were trained up to go out and teach in their communities and take the Christian message. Hinaru Taratoa is an example of that. Um, but it took a long time, and so they were trained up by the missionaries and sent out. Um, and they are really doing a lot of the legwork of, of spreading the gospel. And then there are the um, ordained clergy. It took quite a long time for um, the first Maori clergy to be ordained. That's the gentleman there, Waita Waitao, um, in Auckland, um, who was leading in 1953. Uh, and there was a small, I guess, um, a number of Maori clergy in the, in the early period. But the Kenitanga was interesting as well. Uh, where are we telling Hanara? I'll put his photo up there because I think he's a crucial figure in the whole story. We talked about the, uh, the, the mission station at Matamata being a failure. Well, he actually converted to um, Christianity in 1839. It was actually Brown who converted him. Uh, and uh, he, that had a significant effect on his iwi. Um, he built two pacifist villages um, and he um, actually built a church that they say could hold a thousand people. It's hard to imagine. Uh, and he became a very powerful um, example of Christianity. And when the Kingitana was um, established in 1858, his, one of his names is the Kingmaker, when the Maori king was established, he held the Bible over the king's head as he was being coronated uh, as an indication that the Kingitana would be under the authority of the government. It would be a Christian-based organisation. Uh, now, war broke out in 1860, and we could speak for a long time, just going to go very briefly, but the war really was a, um, a, really at the death now for a lot of the mission activity. The um, first war broke out in the Taranaki in the then through the Waikato in the over here in Totoro, and then it just carried on through the rest of the, the decade. And the missionaries were really conflicted. Um, they had been, they, they saw the Maori as their flock, but of course they were still Victorian English people, and they had all these values that they had brought with them. And in some ways, they had been um, fundamental in, in making significant changes in Maori society, and changes in, in a sense. Uh, in, in, so they had, they had a dog in the fight, if you like, they had some skin in the game. And it's not, it was also very complicated. For instance, here in Tauranga, it would be easy to think that um, all of the Māori here in Gate Park, for instance, uh, were supported by all of the other Māori, and it was Māori against the British Army, but it wasn't like that at all. There were Māori who were vehemently against the government, there were Māori who were undecided and sitting on the fence, and there were some who were actually um, still supporting the government and feeding information and so on to the government. So it wasn't clear cut. And so the missionaries are kind of caught in this middle ground. Where, what is their stance? And each one of them had a different, a different stance. But in total, the King Kanga was probably a step too far for most of the missionaries. They had a concept of Māori becoming part of the British Empire under the authority of the governor, uh, under the authority of Queen Victoria, and to be setting up a rival monarch, a king within this country, was a step too far for most of the missionaries. 
certainly a step too far for this gentleman here, John Morgan, who was a long-standing missionary in um, Te Aroutu, Otafao. And um, that church there um, dates back to 1854, so that was a church on his very successful mission station. And he had been part of the process of that region becoming very prosperous. And there were hundreds of acres of farms and um, that were owned by Maori and mills. It's said that the flour from the, that area was actually being exported to Australia and even as far as the Californian gold fields. Um, but he was very fixed in his mind that the Maori were rebelling and he became a spy minister. He was passing information about what was happening in his region back to Governor Paul Brown. And in the end, he was evicted uh, from the Waikato by Ruby Manipoto. But he is at the far end, and he, he was um, roundly criticised by a lot of missionaries, and so they, they kind of fill the spectrum, if you like. Here's another one. After the, um, after the wars came to an end, uh, a lot of Māori were dispossessed of their land. Um, it is estimated that only 15% of Māori remained in Waikato, for instance. There were hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of acres of land that was confiscated. And a lot of Māori uh, were living destitute uh, outside of their areas because they were now in exile. And this is just an image that I've got there. But this is a comment from Reverend Grace, who did some time here in Tauranga. I'll read it just because it might be hard to read. They say when they saw their bishop and missionaries who had possessed their confidence, as they supposed, counselling and leading their enemies, they lost their confidence and became our bitterest enemies. That we came to this country and taught them to lift up their eyes to heaven, while we ourselves kept ours turned down to the land. For our own work's sake, I think we ought to let them see that in this respect we are walking honestly towards them. And there are some who actually, um, some some are who claim that Bishop Salmon um, even burned the a Roman Catholic Church at Rangiofia. Um, uh, Archbishop Moxon was very clear about that, and he wasn't there at the time. But this is this is it's just an indication that um, that the Maori lost confidence in the mission church as a result of, of these things, and so we start to see the development of. Um, syncretic religions, or sometimes they're called adjustment religions, Paimarari, uh, Ringatu, uh, even Rasma is an adjustment to, uh, it's a way of finding yourself in a world that's been put into, into a washing machine. It's, it's looking for a Maori response to Christianity, an indigenous version of this religion at this time. And um, the church, the, a lot of the mission stations close at this point. Okay, so we can just, um, I'll just try and summarise. You can read what I've said there, but the, the missionaries, I think those um, sort of encapsulate who they were. Um, they were extremely strong in their faith. They needed to be to come here and, and to deal with what they did. Most of them were committed to a lifetime of work in New Zealand and died here as older people. Uh, they believed in a con personal conversion and salvation. They thought that that would reform society, and they also believed in good works. But they were from another culture. They were from Victorian England. They were Eurocentric. How could they really not be? 
they could be, as you see, paternalistic, self-righteous judgment. And one of the things I think that perhaps is different to the way we would visit another country today, um, they weren't interested in another version of God. They weren't really interested in any Maori concepts of, of, of spirituality. So what are their effects? Well, um, yes, they were agents of colonisation. Um, and historian James Bouch, who's been pretty tough on the, um, on the whole colonised process, whole colonisation process, calls them agents of virtue and the world of vice. The written language that they introduced absolutely transformed Maori society. And so did Christianity. And Christianity is still, um, you know, still such a fundamental part of, of, of Maori society, Maori culture today. Uh, and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the ceremonial stuff that happens, um, Christianity is a big part of The agriculture, the medicine, all the technology, the farming stuff transformed the Maori economy. And actually, Maori, by the 1850s, were into the cash economy. And some tribes were becoming quite wealthy. And of course, they brought an end to the intertribal warfare and slavery. Um, as people converted, they stopped tattooing uh, because the missionaries were part of the, the tattoos. So someone like Inari Taratoa um, became a Christian before he was old enough to be tattooed. Um, and that gener that, his generation, most of them are not tattooed. Um, uh, and a lot of other things, they had a pretty substantial influence on the Maori culture. The efforts to establish a Maori church were pretty local. And the wars really um, were a real fine man in the coffin in a lot of ways. Uh, now, we can just think, think about this whole process in a number of ways. There is this theory that was very prevalent for a long time, fatal impact, that the process of colonisation is just completely destructive and Māori had to, and other cultures as well, had to assimilate or die out. And the culture was essentially destroyed. That's um, probably been replaced now with this um, idea that people seem to be talking about, about much more now is the idea of Maori agency. As I tried to show you earlier on, the, the first mission was really a partnership. And they were invited to come and there was, a, there was an effort to set up something that was going to be of value to both sides. And throughout the whole process of of Christianity, Māori have taken what they wanted. Yes, that's a good idea, we'll use that, we'll blend that in the air, we'll mix it a little bit, and we'll create our own form of this new, this new faith. And they've adapted it to their own purposes. So that's probably a more modern um, interpretation of what happened. And then I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago that I thought was really interesting, a very fine gentleman who comes from the Rangihoa area, and his people talk about them being prepared for Martin to come. They talk about some sort of prophetic coming, that their people had prophesied that something dramatic was coming, and they had started to prepare themselves for the coming of Jesus Christ when they arrived. Now this is getting into a little bit of the area of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. I said I wasn't going to get into the but it was just interesting that that's how, the, that how his people in that area are perceiving this whole process. And with that, 
I'll just finish. Williams when he died? Uh, he was in his 60s, 67 okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Williams actually fell out with Governor Gray who accused him of buying too much land at one stage and he was actually thrown out to CMS temporarily. Yeah. Yes? Uh, I'm sorry, this one. seen any myself, but I would imagine some of them are around, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. There are some very interesting bits down in, in Mission House. Oh, okay. There you go. Yes. <laughs> there are some interesting tracks down in the Mission House from this period. Any other thoughts? Could you speculate on how Maori might have transitioned from Stone Age to industrial age in about 75 years without the Church Missionary Society? <laughs> would it have happened anyway? Um, so the question was, how would Maori transition, you use the term Stone Age, but, um, to, the, to the modern age in that um, period of time? Certainly the missionaries were, I, I think, a very really important part of that. Um, obviously there was no turning back. You know, Europeans had arrived. There were a lot of dodgy characters here as well. Um, uh, so it was, you know, once the door was open, it can't be closed. And it was, I suspect it was probably good that the missionaries um, played as big a role as they did in that whole process. Um, but would, would trade have taken place uh, and the knowledge of how to trade and what to trade, would that have happened without the... Oh, yes. um, so the question was, what trade have taken place? Yes, there's a lot of trade happening. Um, like there's the whaling and the sealing. Um, there's a, um, a lot of... Uh, timber flax. Timber flax, yeah. Um, and, and even at that very early stage, a lot of intermarriage is happening in some of these little um, sort of communities. Um, and as you saw, Maori travelling a lot more than I think people realise. Um, so yes, there was a lot, definitely a lot happening. Any other thoughts? Yes. Um, so the men attended the um, CMS training place. What about their wives? Were they trained at all, or were they uh, just cold married? I think it was mainly the men who were. It was, it was the men who were training there. Um, oh, I guess the wives prepared themselves as best they could, um, but um, some of the wives were not of the group that would have had a profession or a, a trade or something like that. Um, so it was mainly the men who would do that. Um, the, the, the jobs the wives tended to end up doing was running the household and as I've said, the children and, and, and then sort of being thrown into but the But did they know what they were getting into? I did. The question was, did they know what they were getting into? I doubt very much. Any other thoughts? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about 
Octavius Hatfield because he seems to be quite a standout missionary in those times that didn't sort of compromise too much with government and managed to yeah. walk a pretty good line with the Maori? Yeah, I don't know an awful lot. Octavius Hatfield was based at Otaki. Uh, he was quite a sickly man and um, he was actually um, thought he was dying back in England and decided that he would go into the mission field. If he was going to die, he was going to die doing something good. Um, and um, he's actually part of that Tarori story where the Gospel of St Luke goes down to Rotorua and then down to Otaki and they ask for a missionary and he gets sent down there and, um, and, and is the missionary to those people. And as you say, he was very, um, very committed to that community down there. And one of the interesting um, offshoots from that is Tauraparaha um, had, had waged war against the Naitahu people in the South Island and, and had, um, had some major victories at Akaroa and um, Kapoya. And um, his son, um, under the influence of the Hatfield, um, becomes a Christian goes to St John's College and then goes to the South Island and to all of those communities and apologises to them, asks for forgiveness and takes the gospel to the South Island. Yeah, so that was, he's tied up in that story. Uh, way down the back. Cliff, <laughs> um, two things that I was wondering. Um, if we wanted to read the diary that you talked about of Marianne Williams, how would we do it? And Yeah, um, looking at the bigger picture, 
uh, Almighty Father in heaven saw the threat of the Third Reich coming up, and Great Britain had to be built up and resources to tackle this foe of mankind. So he looks further into the future, knowing the infinite past. So everything that happened with the missionaries bringing peace and goodwill to all mankind was part of that plan. He could think into the future. And just like he's thinking into the future now before he returns in this all power and glory, where his son is preparing the church throughout the world to take the true gospel to mankind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Final thoughts. Um, John, would you want to say anything to people? Uh, firstly, thank you, Cliff. Uh, somebody asked about Hadfield. I came from Wellington Diocese, and uh, so some of the missionaries actually got dismissed by CMS because they were anti the war uh, and were very vocal in their opposition to the New Zealand war. Uh, so Hadfield was one of those. Uh, they were reinstated down the line, but um, a lot of the settlers weren't happy with their opposition to what was going on. Uh, so Hadfield was one of those. Uh, when the first Bishop of Wellington was appointed, uh, so the, the photograph up on the wall, the wives, were actually all bishop's wives. The only true missionary wife there was Jane Williams, and all the others had come out here as the wives of bishops. Uh, and so one of them was Abraham. So he was the first bishop of Abraham, but the role was uh, um, offered to Hatfield, and he said, I am too unwell. I will not live long enough, so appoint someone else. So they appointed Abraham. He died. So they came back to him and said, uh, well, you're still around, so how about giving it a crack? And he went, oh, reluctantly, yes. Uh, and he lived for a long time. Just, uh, just, um, apparently the climate down in Wellington suited him. Who knew? <coughs> so he didn't die. Um, well, he did eventually. So he is, he is uh, the second Bishop of Wellington. Um, and one of the pieces that Cliff didn't talk about was during the war, we kind of alluded to it, Selwyn sent out a directive that the, that the missionaries were to act as chaplains to the British Army if the soldiers ended up in their patch. And that really compromised them. So they, they weren't big fans of the Kingitanga, um, but they could kind of, a, kind of scoot around that. But when the troops arrived here, for example, um, Brown had to act as the chaplain to the troops. That's what his bishop had told him to do it. And even they... They kind of were off to one side from Selwyn. He was still the bishop. So that really put them in a compromised position. And, and that made, I mean, that was the death knell, really, of many of the mission stations. And Selwyn acknowledged that when he left. He made a mistake. And he should not have done that. Um, so thank you, Cliff. I mean, the story of the missionaries is amazing. One of the things that John Black pointed out was... When these guys retired, there was no pension. 
couldn't go back to England, they had to stay here. So a lot of them get a lot of hard, a lot of flack about the land they bought. They bought the land, and we could criticise some of the Williams land uh, acquisitions. I'm not going to get into that. But Brown, for example, did buy some of the land down uh, down there, and that was so that his family had a way of making an income and supporting themselves uh, once he stopped being a missionary. So, I mean, they came out here, Henry Williams had an income, but most of them didn't. Uh, it, was, it was incredibly hard work. Um, and they, I mean, it's an astounding story. So thank you, Cliff, for, for get, helping us get into that. Uh, so again, thank you, Cliff. Um, So next week, Cliff and Buddy are going to talk about the Battle of Gate Pa and Taranga, which a number of you have already heard. Um, but I'm aware there are a lot of people who haven't heard it. There are a lot of people in Tauranga who still don't know the story of these important battles and why they are important for us to remember today. So I invite you to uh, invite people along and encourage them to come. And then, I think on the 14th of February, but you're going to have to keep an eye out for the advertising for this, we're still nailing this down, uh, uh, the Reverend Dr. Hedani Carr is coming. So some of uh, some of you are of a generation. You may remember Honi Carr, who was on television. This is his son, uh, who's followed him. So one of the things that Cliff didn't talk about was, for us Parker, we kind of get to choose which denomination we're in. Um, but for, for, for some Māori, your, your iwi affiliation dictates what you are. So if you're over the bridge in Pirirako land around Tapuna, you're Catholic. That's part of your whakapapa. You might go to another church, but fundamentally, you're Catholic. And on the East Coast, Ngāti Parau, you're Mihinari, you're Anglican. And you might go to another church, or you might go to no church, but somewhere deep in your roots, you are Mihinari. So um, that's... Um, one of our archbishops, Don Tamahiri, comes from the East Coast. He's been Pentecostal. He's been all sorts of things. But at his roots, he was Mihinari. So now he's one of our um, archbishops. And, and Hidani's the same. So it's kind of in his, his blood. So um, he's going to be talking on the 14th. And we're still nailing down what he's going to talk about. I mean, I've asked him to talk about the Treaty of Waitangi because um, he does talk about that. But he has just put out a book based on his doctoral research um, about the missionary story from a Māori perspective. And one of the things that he was able to do as a Māori fluent in Te Māori was he could go to the Alexander Turnbull Library and read all the letters that Māori wrote at the time, which people like me have no access to because we can't read the language. So his thesis was, so here's the Anglican Church that grew out of this kind of uh, interaction between Māori and Hākehā. Um, so what was the Māori perspective on that? What was their take on what was going on? What was their contribution? So I'm hoping he might be able to talk a bit about that. And he, he, he will probably bring some of his books for sale as well, knowing that it And we will have the, our last few copies of Buddy and, and uh, Cliff's books for sale uh, next week as well. Um, they are trying to get... A reprint. But, um, well, COVID has put up the cost of printing books. 
So they're just having to negotiate with the publisher about that. So, uh, so that's uh, next week is uh, Battle of Gate Park Tananga with Buddy and Cliff, and then on the 14th, probably Hidini, and there is still a possibility of something happening on the 7th, but um, the guy we asked has disappeared. <laughs> yes. I just want to thank you very much. Uh, to be, I feel blessed to be in your fellowship here, uh, that you've uh, taken responsibility, but also the privilege of listening to you talking about our people and, and the, the brethren, the people who came over, the missionaries who came over to, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm Māori and I love the Lord and uh, I came to the Lord through Christian brethren, people who, worked over to, who walked over to Matapini to bring the gospel, to teach us in Sunday school and, uh, to, uh, and uh, to come to our home. I love our Māori people and they taught us some wonderful things about uh, respecting the God, the gods of, of the world who gave us so much. But I guess but I want to thank you all very much for the European people and uh, for the missionaries who brought the gospel to our people. I just want to let you know that uh, I'm blessed to be here with you and thank you for uh, that message that you've given. But also thank you as well. I feel uh, mahana, very warm, and being in your fellowship. Uh, there are not many fellowships that no Māori people, and sometimes I just feel I want to reach out and say, look, I'm born again, I love the Lord, like all of you here. Uh, so it's lovely to be here, I feel very warm, and thank you again, and we look forward to our relation, Buddy, to bring uh, more of the richness of our, our combined fellowship. Now, it doesn't matter, God created us all, and uh, just regardless of what religion or what race we are, he created us to love each other and to look after one another and to share again the gospel of Christ. Thank you for your words and uh, just lovely being here and with my husband, who's European, speaks the real beautifully. <laughs> Because of the need to communicate with our Māori people and our lovely friends here who were Kutarere, the uh, school, the headmaster of Kutarere and his wife, who, whose love went out to the Māori people at Kutarere. But thank you for being here and uh, bless you all, but thank you Lord for the missionaries that you spoke about, bringing the gospel passed down to each generation to bring it to all of us, not just Māori, but to everybody. So, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, it was quite a surprise to have such a big crowd, and I hope to see some of you next week, and certainly hope to see some of you when Hedini is here. Have a good, have a good night, and uh, safe travel home.